left my family. I left my kids. I left my nightclubs, my parking company, $35 million to fight the fight. And both families, Gambino and the Bonanno family, Joe Messina, the boss of the Bonanno family, I helped him against the guys who were ratting against him. He turned state evidence into worldwide. His underboss, Sal Vitale, came in and he ratted. The captain, Frankie Copa, he ratted. And alongside them, there was other guys in their family that ratted. Along with my family, the boss, John Gotti Jr., he ratted. Ronnie Warnham, you have the opening statement. He ratted. He said that I would kill him if he wasn't nice to me. After I tried to help him beat the case. Mikey Scars, DeLonardo, John Gotti Jr.'s right-hand man. He ratted. Greg De Palma, another one of John Guy's made guys. He ratted. Fat Dom, another one of his made guys. He ratted. Mikey Scars had Joe, little Joey D'Angelo and John Jr. had him rat because they turned on him. He had nowhere to go. Another guy, Mikey Scars' brother, well, they, they buried him. So he had a flip. He had to come in. And I won't use the word rat for these guys because these guys were left in no man's land by all the captains, made guys, giving these guys up one at a time. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Mafia Truths with John A. Light. I'm Felix Levine and John A. Light to my right. Before we get into it today, a quick reminder to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done so already, like this video, and also subscribe to our Patreon where we post, where we post monthly Q&As and you will have the ability to ask John personalized questions and we also offer discounts on some of our bats that we're selling that have been widely popular. We just shipped out our first batch uh, a few days ago, and if you're interested in a bat, you can hit me up on Instagram at Felix.Levine, and we will set you up. John, we were talking uh, a few seconds ago about a New York, a sting operation in New York. I actually haven't heard the story. I wanted to wait uh, for us to be live for you to at least tell it to me uh, in the world, so I'll let you take it away. So, uh, you know, obviously I'm running a big organization at the time. And one of my first partners was uh, there's a White Horse pub that the owner, uh, Scarpinito, Frankie, and his father uh, were around the Genovese family forever. Ciro Perona was a very powerful Genovese captain. And guys like Johnny Santoro, you know, we spoke about tough guys who was a dangerous killer. Johnny Santoro was one of them. My cousin... Uh, uh, Patsy used to stay with them. Then the father, then the son stayed with me later on and got indicted on some murders with me. But that group stayed in the White Horse. It was a very well-known group of uh, tough guys that worked for Cyril Peron at the time. So you had law enforcement around constantly because of them. And uh, as we're coming up, uh, we're moving coke like crazy out of the bar, the White Horse. Frankie, like I said, was my one of my original drug partners. And... Uh, so I have conduits that, that'll move weight for me. And um, one of the guys comes to me, and I have an apartment with him up the block from the White House, which is on 87th Jamaica Avenue. And for the people that don't know, a lot of guys got killed in front of that bar. Uh, next door, there was another bar. There was a double homicide, a uh, very famous case with the Gambino family. Bobby Glasses is one of the guys that gets convicted on that case on a double murder. He ends up dying of a heart attack in jail. Uh, a friend of mine, Mikey Merlo, with kids, he got 
uh, shot in the head with a shotgun at the 17 years old, young age, uh, chasing a guy, and the guy blasted him. Angelo Costelli, another good friend of mine, was actually he was getting married. I was in his wedding party. He gets killed in front of the White Horse and uh, several others. So uh, that's a, a real known spot for murders and uh, uh, for drug dealing and for the mob. Um, so they start a sting operation, the uh, FBI and state organized crime task force. And I'm up the block. I have several drug houses, one on 96th Street, Jamaica Avenue. I have one up on 85th Road and 86th Street. And then I have another apartment down on 78th Street. These are all where I keep drugs and I keep uh, guns and I keep different things. And one of my guys, Joey D. Corrali, who I lived with at the time in the townhouse, he's... Uh, supplying some of my guys. One of them is Keith Croce, and uh, Frankie Scarpinito uh, kind of oversees it. And uh, he gives me a, a call, and he says, I need an extra three kilos this week. So I said to Joey, all right, I'll, you know, I'll talk to you, and I'll see you. So we're on pay phones. A couple of days later, I come see him, and uh, I give him the weight. And the, he goes, and he delivers it. And I forget to ask him, because usually I ask these guys, why all of a sudden... Is there an increase? Who are you selling to? And just that day, I just didn't ask him. And I gave him the three kilos. And uh, maybe two weeks go by, and uh, I have another conversation with him, and he asks me for five kilos. And I said, well, what do you need five kilos? This time I ask him. He says, well, Keith Croce, he's got a new uh, guy that's buying weight from him. So I said, what do you mean a new guy? He says, the guy that hangs around the White Horse and... Uh, He's been buying from. I said, does he know the guy? He goes, yeah, I think so. So I said, does he, do you think so? Do, or does he know him? He goes, well, from what I'm being told, he knows him. So another couple of days go by. I don't jump on it. Again, I just kind of think, all right, they probably know the guy. I don't think it's an emergency of any sort. And I see Frankie Whitehorse. And I say to Frankie, uh, what's going on here? He's got an apartment in Lindawood, near Howard Beach at the time. And he says, oh, Keith's been supplying this guy. I says, well, who's the guy? He goes, I don't know. He drives a, a black Mercedes, brand new, and he's been coming in the last couple of months. I says, how long exactly? He said, two months. I says, who does the guy know? And they mentioned somebody's name. He knew somebody, supposedly. So I know something's wrong. So I go back to Joey, and I says, do not bring anything again to the White Horse for anybody until you see me. And he's okay. I said, then move all the drugs that we have here and bring it down to another apartment Dennis Pittman had. It was another guy. He passed away. Him and his brother both died since then. They worked for me. And uh, I says, bring everything down to Dennis's apartment on 96th Street and clear out my other apartment on 78th Street. And the reason why I wanted 78th Street cleared out is because when I was talking to him, he said the guy goes down to 78th Street also. There's another bar that we had over there called the Old Brother Inn. And uh, he was inquiring at the old brother in also. Now, since if you're just dealing with drugs, it's one thing. But like I said, there's violence. There's bodies there. I baseball batted somebody to death in front of old brother and three guys. I think we got into that story before. So they know there's violence. And there's other shootings going on besides that. So that violence brings these investigations like this. So I go and I have a meeting and uh, I see Keith Croce. And I said to him, uh, Keith, come here. I want to talk to you. And, you know, he's a young, skinny kid at the time. And I said, uh, how'd you meet this guy? So he says, well, he comes in a bar. I said, yeah. 
he says, yeah, he was buying like a gram, he was buying two grams. He knew when, he, again, he threw somebody's name out, say Mike. I said, he knew Mike? I go, how do you know he knew Mike? And he says, well, he told me that. I said, he told you he knew Mike, and how long has he been buying for you? He says, the last couple of months. And then he stepped it up to what? He was willing he bought a half a key, and then he bought a key. I says, half a key and a key. I go, do not sell him anything again. He goes, no, he's all right. He's getting high with me and everything. He goes in the bathroom and gets high. I goes, so what does that mean? So I said, listen, you're going to go to jail. You're going to get locked up. That's a cop. He's, how do you know? I just look at him. I shake my head. I go, do not sell anything to him again. Now I pull Frankie White off. And I said, Frank, this guy's been coming to the bar for two months? He goes, yeah. I said, don't get high with him. Don't sell him anything. You're going to get locked up. He goes, how do you know? I said, you're going to get locked up. So the next time he's here, I want you guys to text me or beep me. I don't remember if we had beepers or phones in those days. I think it was te- uh, beepers. And they hit me up, and I come to the bar. I go outside. I get his plate. I take the plate. I give it to the cop, Phil Baroni, that works with me, that was my partner in sports, and he did the murder with me and everything. I said, Phil, do me a favor. Run this guy's plate. I said, I'm pretty sure he's a cop. He comes back, and he says, yep, John, it's no good. He's a cop. So I said, I knew what these fucking idiots are doing business with a cop. So I go back to Frank. I go, how many times did you buy from this guy buy from you? He says, actually, he always buys from Keith, but a couple of times he bought with me and he talked. I go, listen, most likely he's wired up. He's gotchas. And uh, I think Keith, so when it comes down and I move everything, a couple, maybe a month goes by and he's still trying to dig in the guy and I come to the bar. And he's trying to talk to me. And I said to him, uh, you're not allowed in here no more. And he says, excuse me? I said, you're not allowed in here no more. He says, why not? I says, because I know you're a cop. I said, no, you got these guys. I says, but the, the, it's over. I said, I'm not going to play games with you. Everybody knows you're a cop. You can't come in here no more. He goes, who are you? I says, I'm nobody. I says, I'm just telling you, everybody knows you're a cop. And nobody wants you in here anymore. So he goes, is that, that's the way it is? I says, yeah, that's the way it is. You're, you're a cop. I know it. You know it. I know you're not going to say that to me, but don't come in anymore. And by the way, your, your black Mercedes you got outside, we already ran the plate. We know it's no good. So he looks at me. He goes, well, can we talk? I No, we can't talk. I said, see you later. And maybe a month went by or six weeks or something, and they all get locked up. And uh, I think Keith Grochy got a five-year or six-year. I don't remember exactly. Maybe got less. But I cut it off, or he would have got more. How'd they, how'd they kind of... You know, what was the final straw or how'd they get your guys? Direct, they or, got, or arrested them. Like when they arrested them, did they come to the White Horse? I mean, what? what, what yeah, happened? yeah. They got Frankie out of the White Horse. I know that. I don't remember where they grabbed Keith. And they had him on. They got him good. They had him on tapes. They, they, they were taped up. So they got him on audio. I don't know if they had him on video, but they had him on audio. Uh, they had him on direct sales. They had him on Mark Bills. They got him good. How many years? So how many years did they each do? Uh, I think Frankie only got very little time. Frankie got about a year and a half or something like that, and he beat a lot of the charges, and everybody was accusing him of being an informant back then. Oh. Uh, I really don't think he was. I just think that, you know, he got some good attorneys. They didn't get him good because uh, I cut him off. And uh, Joey D. Corrali never got pinched, even though he's the guy that was supplying these guys to give it to the, to the cop. And he was trying to make his way to us, to Joey, Joey to me. And, you know, I had everybody insulated, so it wasn't easy to get to me. And uh, Keith Croce, they got, and maybe he did less too, but he did a, at least a couple of years. 
They gotta be idiots to not have different plates. Well, it's not like what most people think. Most guys from the street first are greedy. So that's first. Second, they're stupid. And 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 third, uh they're uh they don't think, you know, because if, when someone's coming to you and he's buying a gram at a time and then all of a sudden he ups it up to half a kilo, something's wrong. It should tell you something. Because you know, yeah. if he moved it slowly like a quarter, you know, like he got an eighth of a uh, a key or if he got you know something a quarter of a key and then he just kept it like that for six months and he's building his business then maybe possibly build it but they don't have time to spend like that they're trying to get to you know they're trying to get to me and guys above me and you know and the guy that so the guy that you had the interaction with uh, the undercover cop what like what does he look like does he look kind of threatening or how do they nah, actually no he was just you know he's dressed casual slick guy you know with good shape thin uh Listen, he had cop written all over him. I mean, <laughs> you're on the street, you have a sixth sense for it. I mean, there was a down the block at Old Brother and they came in also, but they came directly to me that time and they said, I don't know if it was involved in the same sting as this one, but they, they said the cookie sent them over. Now, cookie was a girl that I dated the cousin when we were younger and it was a mobbed up family also. And uh, he said, Cookie. I says, Cookie who? He says, Cookie. I says, Cookie who? And he just kept saying Cookie. I says, well, if you know her so well, Cookie who? I'm asking you what her last name is. And you imagine the guy really didn't know her last name. He didn't know anything about it. Do they look, what, like an undercover cop, when you're asking them that, are they, do they look stressed out? Do they look nervous? He, nah, he just, you could see he was dumbfounded. He didn't have the answers. I asked him a couple other things. I don't remember what I asked, but I asked him a couple questions. And he did not answer. I go, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, I, and I never really carried anything, so... Oh. They couldn't get me even if they wanted to toss me. I, I never carried nothing. Everybody worked for me. I just, I didn't hold it and sell like myself. You know, uh, you know, these guys, I, what I used to do is package up 10 grams at a time. So I'd give them 10 grams and I had a guy that would package with me. And then he'd give it to how many people we had working that would work pieces. So say there was 30 guys in the neighborhood. We'd give them a certain amount of, of grams in quarters, in halves, in gram pieces. And then if they ran out and they needed, each bar was near each other. They would switch and call each other or text each other and say, hey, do you got a gram down the block a piece? I'm, I'm out of gram piece. And then, you know, so, I mean, it, we were pretty sophisticated, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. for, uh, <laughs> how, how, what were the cuts like? How does it, how does it work, you know, for the For every up? 10 grams that were out there. How uh, much is 10 the grams? Guys, the, the guys would, well, back then you'd sell, you know, 100 a gram. Okay. You didn't really give those discounts to 85. I know years later, but... That, that came years later. But back then, actually, sometimes 110 a gram. And you give the guys uh, 300 each, they would make on 10 grams. But 10 grams, nothing. They'd up, right. you know, three or four times a night. So they would, they would up it uh, three or four times a night. And uh, so, you know, we were busy. I mean, you're, you're, one guy might sell, you know, you know 30, 40 grams a, a, a night. Another guy will sell 100 grams a night in pieces. Wow. So, you know, we had from South Jamaica, from my after hours, uh, we'd have all the way up into Brooklyn, down to Ridgewood. We'd go to Bayside. So we were all over, you know, uh, Queens, Brooklyn. Now, do you think that ultimately, like in, in the example you just gave with this kind of sting, they were, the ultimate goal was to get after you? Was that? Oh, yeah. They all, you know, I'm the guy they're looking for and uh, who I work with. So who I work with is the mob, right? And who we're buying from. And we were buying from cartel guys. We were buying from a lot. You know, we had, I'd always have about 10 different suppliers. So depending, some of them were cartel guys, some of them were, you know, just guys like myself and Italian guys from, you know, mafia. Or we'd have, uh, you know, some other guys. Like uh, I did business with uh, 
a lot of the bikers because my friend at the time was president of the Hells Angels. So we did, they did more with speed, but we did some business with Coke too. Who had the best quality product? Uh, my friend Henry. Uh, I dated uh, his, the father got killed by the cartel and they, they forced the son Henry actually to do business with them. And he started working his father's dead off. And I was dating his sister, Lorraine. And uh, I just stumbled on him because me and her were talking. She told me the story. She was crying about how they killed the father, forced the brother into business. But he probably had the uh, the best coke that I, I did business with in a long time. And they, they lived by St. John's University. Now for you, when you first heard, you know, you're at the White Horse and you start, and you start seeing things that are not adding up or getting a little fishy, you know what what's going on internally for you are you is that does that become a, a way more stressful time are you going around asking and figuring it out or is that kind of you know regular day at the office yeah it's a regular day at the office and you just kind of know you know you know these guys are idiots i know i'm insulated even if they pinch them and they tell them it's me and this and that i these guys that were really weren't close to me i didn't i didn't even let them know where my safe houses were these just my workers on the street but guys like dennis Pittman, i was very close to his brother kevin Kevin Pittman was very close. He did time with Frankie Burke, and we were all, you know, mingled together, friendly. Guys, like, you know, we had the bar at the PM that I would give this, you know, to Ronnie Wanham, and, and they would run that bar. So, you know, we all had, it was a, a, a cell system of guys. So I would give the Coke to Ronnie Wanham. Ronnie would have his guys running down, and Keith Croce kind of used to work for Ronnie also at the PM pub and something. So he'd run that section. Then I had the main bar where I would give it to this guy, Keith Pellegrino, and he'd have his guys they run that section. Then I'd go to Pool Hall on 102nd in Jamaica Avenue. And that was Guy Peden. He'd run that section. I had the guy from Mateo's restaurant, Maddie, that worked for Guy. And he had a, a, a candy store at the time off 101st Avenue by Villa Russo. He would sell for me. So, you know, I had, but they'd all go through their own guys that were my guys. So when guys tell me how many guys you had, well, I just named just my top guys that would have guys that work. And they, they'd all run each section. And then they come back to me and ask me, well, I need this. And then I had Joe Galliano in Ridgewood, and he had a factory there. So we had all the Spanish crowd on that section. And uh, it was run pretty, we, we ran it pretty well. Who are the most, like, efficient suppliers? Uh, what, uh, who ran the tightest shift? Was it the Colombians? Yeah, I mean, back in those days in the 80s, uh, you know, I had a, a cousin of mine that was involved with the T Detroit mob. He was in the laundromat business, uh, in hotels and uh, in the linen business, actually, not laundromat. But the linen business was very mob control back then. And so he had a big hook, this guy Pete, uh, through the cartels and through the mob that would drive it down for me from Detroit. They'd do their route and end up at me last and we'd meet. And then I'd pick up whatever from him at the time, about 10 keys a month just from him. But I had different suppliers, again, because if you're going to run short, you had to make sure. Or if I knew that it was getting short on the street, then I'd pick up 100 keys or something and I'd store at different locations. So then say you had, you know, ten or $100,000, then how are, you, how are you personally, like, washing it and cleaning it up? I took showers with it all. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I bought a lot of property. What I did, you know, back then I used to buy properties all the time. So I'd buy a property for 300000 say. Right. I'd buy the property, take a mortgage. Uh, I put down thirty, forty thousand. Put down twenty percent. I used to work with Greenpoint Savings. They'd give me a million dollars if I wanted it, and I had a, a good accountant at the time. Mike Batetti passed away since then, and uh, so he would help maneuver me through the uh, the money side of this. 
uh, I think about it. He was a nice guy, great guy, fun to hang out with, go drink with, but he was a maniac, actually. Legitimate, you know, count. But with all the, what you need, the guy that's mm -hmm. going to help you launder and clean the money. So he was really my ace in a hole that I just stepped into by accident. And he was, a, you know, a neighborhood guy. And what he would do is get me the loan. I'd get a loan for 300000 say. Okay. And uh, I'd take my drug money and I'd start paying off the loan. And then I'd go out and I'd borrow off that house again. I'd buy another house. And then I'd take that money and I'd borrow, say, another 250000 I did it with my nightclubs a lot. And then I'd borrow the money okay. and I'd show it this way. So when they had 250000 I bought a nightclub. They'd say, where you got it from? I borrowed it off the building. So now I had it cleaned out like that. So when I did my Club Mirage originally, I took about a half a million. I gave it to my partner, Cam. He flew in. He got on a train. He was on his way back, and the FBI stopped him, and he had a bag full of money. So he calls me up. He goes, oh, you're smart. He goes, you knew they were going to grab me. I go, I thought so because of my phones. But the money was clean. We took it out of a bank, actually. So when they took all the serial numbers down, they held them, took all the serial numbers, and the money was clean because of the way I did it. Uh. And then how so how much are you paying your accountant at the time? I'm sure he's getting Oh, he got big money. So like if I borrowed like uh, you know, I'd borrow five hundred thousand, four hundred, he'd get three percent. I'd give them the you know, three points that I think Greenpoint at that time used to take about two or three points off me. So Mike would get that money. Plus I was always throwing him money. Plus he was robbing me here and I used to laugh. I go, Mike, I remember I gave you twenty thousand and these are the arguments we used to have, actually. You never gave me the twenty thousand because so he could tell you how much money we're making if you can't even keep track of twenty grand, you know. And he used to get me all the time. I said, I think I gave it to you already, but I'm going to give it to you again. And you know, so I used to. And he used to laugh. I'm telling you, I go, yeah, go on another vacation with your girlfriend because he used to travel yeah. a lot. And you know, but that was just the routine of of us maneuvering. And I, you know, I was in the parking industry, right. so I was always dealing with cash. So it was a way for me to always clean money and play with money. Yeah. And you know, the FBI obviously eventually knew that. And guys like, uh, I think I talked about it with you on Patreon, Accardi Brothers and these guys that testified against me, or Terry Scaglione was one of my partners, was Traficante, his grandfather was involved, also made guy, he's my partner. So these guys later on were giving information up on me and different things, but it's just part of the life. They were all making side deals. Now, other than real estate and your parking companies, what were other, did you have any other big ways that you were cleaning money? Besides the parking company, the nightclubs, Nightclubs. Always in the nightclubs because of the yeah. cash industry. And uh, I owned candy stores. I owned glass shops. I owned, uh, which was also a good way of moving money because I could buy glass for cash. We'd rob, uh, not that, they would give me ups, you know, from like a company like Safelight. They got trucks. I know some of the drivers, you give them 20000 they give me their load. So maybe they got 300000 on the truck. And they said they got hijacked. Really, I got the truck. They handed it to me. You know, I gave them 20000 <laughs> You know, you can't do it often, but we did it often enough. What was the biggest, like, single uh, dollar figure that you had to clean at once? Or did it not really work like that? No, nah, to... it didn't work like that. I mean, you know, uh, you know, uh, everybody knows this Kennedy Airport was a uh, playground. So, oh, really? you know, we'd go to Anthony Ruggiano, I'll tell you, and Albert at the time. Uh, Bobby Greco, if you're out there, Bobby, you could tell these stories. We used to go out to, to uh, Kennedy Airport, and we'd have the guys on the docks already. They have the manifest. So say a truck's gonna pull up, and you know, we were kids, we got wigs one time. We thought wigs weren't worth anything. This is how stupid we were, really. We had, that's some haul, wigs. You know, you make big money off of wigs, and we didn't know it. We thought it was a waste when we got it. But we have the guys on the, on the docks. So say they have the manifest, and it says we're supposed to be there at three o'clock, the trucks are picking, up, picking them up. 
We'd come there with our own truck at 2 o'clock. Mm. We'd have our guys load the trucks. We'd leave. We're good, right? We just took, a, you know, whatever we took on the truck, whether it's a half a million, 300,000, 2 million, whatever. We got the truck handed, and they load it for us. We don't even do anything. They load it. <laughs> and then we leave, and then, you know, later on, there's an investigation. What happened with this thing? And, well, they came there with the manifest. We got the manifest from our guy. So we used to do it on a regular basis. But Bobby Greco was, at that time, was, he had the, the, there was a couple that we used to, you know, give all the, whatever loads we got, we dump it all to them. And they pay us. And it was Bobby's uh, hook. And we got him through Anthony and Albert, actually. How many times a week are you going to JFK? Oh, we used to go all the time. Anytime you broke, we, we go to JFK. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, we, we, we dump. But, you know, Bobby and his brother Roy were jockeys. I wish Anthony was here while we're telling the story because Anthony will laugh. He'll tell so many good stories with, with the Grecos. And Bobby's out there. And I know his nephew, I think, got in touch with me a couple months back on, on the computer. And he was asking, do you remember my uncle? I was like, how can we not remember your uncle? We all played baseball together. We all hung yeah. around the Ruggiano family. And we all made money together. So it, we, we had a good time. At the same time, we were all friendly. Were there any other big ways that, you know, you were big industries or? Just the robberies. That yeah. we, that we did a lot of robberies. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure I know there's, there's another sting story that we'll talk about in a, in a future episode. So stay tuned to everyone out there. Another quick reminder to... Subscribe to the YouTube if you haven't done so already. Like this video. Leave a comment if it's not uh, anything stupid or John will get will bat you. Um, that's just a joke. Uh, and also another quick reminder to subscribe to the Patreon if you haven't done so already. Um, a great way to ask John all your personalized questions, monthly Q&As, and then a discount on those bats that we're selling. We're selling them to anyone who wants them and also a discounted price to our Patreon members. So hit me up at Felix.Levine on Instagram if you'd like a bat. And we will uh, we'll set that up for you. New book coming out with uh, Lou Romano. And uh, it should be out. I mean, we're done. So we're just putting it together, putting a cover on. It should be out there within the next week, uh, month, not a week. About a month, I'd say. I always say a week or two, but it's going to be a couple of weeks. By the time everything's finished up. But look forward to it. I think it's going to be the best one that we got out there. And JohnElite.com if you're looking for me on my website. Are you doing any uh, audiobooks soon? An audiobook version of it? Yeah, I think we're gonna. That's what you know. Lou's like been talking that. to me about it. Yeah. Let yeah. us know if you want to hear John on a on the audiobook version of that, because I'm sure that could uh, that could be a hit. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know your opinion on if I should do that that way. Perfect. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys.